Welcome to the Tej Talks podcast. Forget the property celebrities. We speak to relatable people with fascinating journeys, just like you. Hosted by Tej Singh, we bring you new stories, life-changing deals, and expert advice every week. Greetings, everyone. On today's show, we have Mo Haker, who's going to talk you through some commercial conversions that he's done, including a 30-bed HMO, uh, a grade two listed chapel, and a grade two listed care home. So we're talking about some really, in my opinion, you know, quite big deals here, some big cash flow, and some big GDVs, talking a 1 to 2.4 million. Um, he has a property business, so he has members of staff who do sourcing, who do this, who do that. And he has four or five different directors in the business too. So we talk quite a bit about the culture of a business, uh, mindset and personal development, as well as the property deal. So if you're thinking of actually growing a property business, and you don't have to, I'm personally not, but there's plenty of people who want to. I think this is a really good episode on how to maintain a good and actually create a good company culture, which something, you know, something that's forgotten. If you're not in fintech, if you're not in the in Shoreditch, it's kind of like culture is just it's not really a thing in some corporates but it is huge and property has a lot of catching up to do so please leave a review if you haven't already and if you're interested in investing with me i have multiple projects and a big pipeline at the moment so whether you want to invest totally passively or you want to earn and learn then please get in touch with me mo welcome to the test talks podcast thank you for having me Thank you for doing this and actually getting us a very lovely space. I'll show everyone on yep. the video yep. the offices that we're in. They are, they're fantastic. So, um, I spoke to you a while ago. Yeah. And I think I read your article in YPM magazine okay. yeah. about a chapel conversion. Yep. Yep. Before we get into that exciting stuff and what you're doing, your businesses with the members of staff that you have, let's go back to the beginning. Okay. Where, like, what were you doing before property and what was the thing or the moment that made yep. you say, right, Let's do yeah. Okay, so um, basically at university, me and um, one of my friends, who's now a business partner as well as a friend, um, we, we were sort of in our second year of uni and we were like, God, we know how much we're paying in rent to like live in these actually not very nice, uh, not very nice properties. And um, we were like, surely we could do this. So we sort of, we did a industrial placement year. So we had a year between our like second and final year of uni. Um, and we were like, we've got to get into property um, so we through that year we managed to get a property we bought an HMO we didn't know it was called an HMO so you bought an HMO in your second in your third year of university yeah basically yeah We so because we had it was a bit of a, was a bit of a, um, not a scam but it was a bit of a, a, a deal basically because we had payslips because we had an income for that year because we were doing an industrial placement year we were like well we're working so we went to see a mortgage broker and the broker was like yeah we'll get you a mortgage fine um, so we basically got this residential mortgage in our between our second and final year of uni um, and bought a four bed HMO and we even back then we sort of knew that we had to add value to the property to sort of make it worthwhile so it had a it did have a loft conversion but the access to it wasn't very good so it was sort of a three bed that we turned into a four bed uh, refurbed it a bit pulled in some some uh, friends to help us out and um, and yeah lived in it in our final year rented out the other two rooms to friends which basically paid the, the mortgage and bills and, and lived there sort of uh, rent free which was which was awesome and that was our sort of entry point into property. how did you pay for the deposit um just just borrowed it from our actually <laughs> i remember i actually dug it out the other day i've got this like 
very, very um, simple business case document that I basically gave to my mum saying it had a, you know, like um, clip art where you can like download a picture of a house from yeah. like clip art and it's like, <laughs> it's like a cartoon house. It had that on the front and it was like this business Classic. proposal for like, oh, I need to borrow 10K. Uh, this is how I'm going to pay it back. This is, it was, it was actually quite good. I, I'm going to, I probably, sh- I might share it actually on social media because it's quite funny. And it's like, this is how we're going to repay you. This is why it's a good investment and all these other kind of things. And, um, and yeah, so I borrowed the money. I think I borrowed like 10K from my mum. I think James borrowed 10K from his, um, his parents. And, and yeah, just, just, just did it like that. And, um, wow. uh, so we did that, but then we, we didn't, re- we didn't, we thought, uh, well, we didn't really know what to do after that. So we just went off and did our graduate schemes. So James, uh, my business partner went and did, um, construction cause that was his, what his degree was in. I went into banking cause I did, um, accounting and finance and, and business at uni. Um, so we went off to graduate schemes. We still had that property. We rented it out. Um, about two or three years later, we then um, sold that property because we thought you had to sell a property to buy a bigger one. We sort of thought that the chain of like property investing was like you had a property, you sold it, you bought a bigger one. And I don't know whether you just kept doing that until you had a mansion or something like how it worked. But we didn't know about refinancing because we hadn't done any property education. Um, so and yeah, where was so the we did house that. Where? Yeah. Uh, in Plymouth. So we were at university in Plymouth. Okay. So we bought in Plymouth. And then when we sold that one, we bought another one in Plymouth. Um, so we bought, sold the four bed HMO and bought a five bed. But again, we still added value to that one. We like moved the kitchen upstairs. We um, dug out the basement a bit and poured a concrete slab and actually did some planning to, 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 for it to be able to be used as an HMO because it's an article four area by then. Um, so we sort of all just sort of learning on the go as we were going. And I was going to say, really... you went from the full bed, not knowing what's happening, yeah. to now digging out basements. Yeah, exactly. Planning. Yeah, yeah. And we had friends helping us out and stuff. And it was really good fun. Um, and that was like very much when we were like on the tools ourselves and doing a lot of the work ourselves. Um, and that was 2013. Um, and then in 2014, 2015, we started getting into like property education. And we were like, right, well, we need to, we need to understand what we're going to do. So we went along to a progressive um, multiple streams event. Um, and just sort of opened our eyes to like the different strategies that we could do and we were like well we've got this property we've got some experience we can we can start to scale this so um, just ended up buying a couple more HMOs during that um, during the next year and then we did the progressive VIP program which is like year long mentoring mm-hmm. uh, accountability so program. how did you fund those those four or five HMOs um, so we we refinanced the because we knew about refinancing then so we refinanced the first one that we'd done and we just um, started talking to people about what we were doing got private investors so just start wow. this starts off with friends and family you know 5, 10k here and there yeah. is enough to sort of get you get you going um, and then and then getting into bigger amounts um, so bought a couple of HMOs, refinanced a couple, and then um, and then we did this year-long mentoring course uh, program, VIP program. And halfway through that, my business partner quit his job to work in the business full time. And then a year later, I I quit my job to work in the business full time because we were just like we were both like this is what we want to do. Yeah. Why are we working? You know, for other for other people. <laughs> yeah. Um, and yeah, that's so that's how it started. Sort of. So by 2015, James quit his job, and 2016, I did the same. I was working at HSBC, um, which was a good job. It was well paid and, and everything. But I was sitting in Canary Wharf working, and, and like all I was interested in was what was going on in Plymouth, like in the property. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So or in the in the business. So that's sort of that was the point at which I was like, I want to do this full time. And um, you had how many properties up to that point? Was it at that five, point like six? No, probably like. Probably three, three H, three or four HMOs at that point. Okay. But we had started as part of that um, year-long program. We started sourcing um, a care home development that mm-hmm. then became 
um, the biggest, sort of the first biggest commercial conversion deal that we did, which was a care home into 10, in, in 10 flats, um, okay. sort of near Plymouth. So that was the point because I knew that was in the pipeline as well. That sort of made the decision to jump out of work a lot easier because we had some income mm. from what we were doing. We then started doing some serviced accommodation to bring some, some okay. cash flow in. Um, and and yeah, that was yeah that was it. So we didn't have a load of property when yeah. we when we started. But you did, you started off with HMOs, which yeah. I think for most people, and I guess what we're taught yeah. sort of is buy to lets, then HMOs, yeah. then flats, then yeah. conversions. I, I guess you kind of got into HMOs without realizing that they made, they were the second step, yeah. as people say, and you carried on. But did you face problems like I don't know? Occupancy, competition, saturation yeah. at the time, or uh, not really. I think, I think, well, I think we did jump jump straight into HMOs without knowing because that first house we we bought was an HMO. And we sort of didn't really know, didn't really know anything else. That was our sort of like uh, sort of frame of reference for, for property investing. And um, I think what we did from the beginning, and it's one of the things that we still do, is because we had been living in HMOs as students and then as professionals and stuff, we knew that. We knew how horribly most of them were run and how badly, you know, how bad the product was that was there. Um, so that's something that we did from the very beginning, sort of from the very beginning of investing. We'd always been charging the most for the rent that we could in Plymouth, like across Plymouth. It was, it was the highest rent that we could achieve and anyone else was achieving because the standard was so high, the service wow. levels were high, we knew maintenance was important because we would, it wasn't that long ago that we were experiencing the same frustrations with our like landlords. Yeah. So I think being that close to it was really important and that's something that we've kept on now. You know, our, our, our houses and our rooms are the highest quality in Plymouth and they're the most expensive because they are the highest quality and we've got the best service. And I think that's helped us, that's really helped us with the occupancy um, and also having a sort of, so I spend half my time in Plymouth and half my time in London where I live sort of bringing down um, sort of ideas of, of how things are being done in London as well down to Plymouth um, is, is really good as well like even just design ideas from like when I'm working in co-working yeah. spaces and things like that bringing that kind of stuff down is, is important okay and so you mentioned you went on the VIP course of progressive yeah. the 12 month sort of mentoring yeah. thing how important has that or in general education been to like getting you from buying HMOs here and there to where you are now yeah it's, it's key right it has to be it has to be the right kind of um, education mentoring accountability and it has to be so it has to be the right thing at the right time so you can have a mismatch of where like you're too early for the, the training that's there or you're too advanced for it and it doesn't add, add any value but it's absolutely key you, you've got to learn from what other people have done you've got to you know if you want to fast track you can't make you can't have you've got the time to make mistakes yourself you can't afford to make right. mistakes yourself um, so Obviously, some things you still got to do yourself to learn from, but it's absolutely key education, mentoring, um, yeah, and it really accelerated us that year. I think the biggest thing for us was going along and seeing other people doing really like amazing things, big things, and thinking, well, they're no different from me, so if they can do it, like surely I can do it. And all they've got is they've got like a couple of years, or they've got a bit more experience. Yeah. You know, there's no reason why I can't replicate that. And we had a couple of deals that we took along to our like mentoring sessions. Um, and we were like, oh, you know, it looks like it stacks on paper, but we're not sure if it's too big for us or whatever. We could do it. One of them was a care home. The other one was like a listed building conversion into an HMO and a flat below. And the mentors were just like, it stacks. You should just do it. And it's almost that push of like self-belief yeah. just to say, no, no, you can you can do this. It's, it's yeah. easy. Well, it's not easy, but it's it's doable. You know, this is you've got this experience. This is how you're protected from the risks and things. So, yeah, it's absolutely key. Um, 
And again, it has to be the right thing. You know, there are enough um, bad education companies and training providers, but there's loads of good ones. And I think the Progressive VIP when we, program when we did it was amazing. This year we're doing Dan Hill's Property Entrepreneur, which is more for, it's not like for beginners, it's more like you've been in property for, for a little bit um, and you've got a property business and you want to know how to scale the business. You want to know how to really focus on, on sort of bottom line growth um, and all those kind of things. So. It's really good. Really, really, we've only done we're only a month into it, but it's it's awesome already. And also, I think the thing with education is it brings in the personal development side as well mm. because there's it's not just if you want to make your business better, you've got to start with yourself. Like if you're not disciplined in your in your own life, and if you've not if you're not feeling good about yourself, and if you you're not being healthy and all these kind of things, your business isn't gonna you know it's not gonna yeah. fly. So you focus on yourself, um, and a lot of that's down to personal development, which I'm into as well. Mm. So. I think what you said there is really interesting. That's what like Tej Talks is about. Yep. It's showing people like you and me who are just one, two, three, four, five steps ahead of everyone yep. else. Yeah. But there's people listening who are you four years yeah, ago. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly and like it. hearing your story, yeah. they're thinking, "Oh, I can do that yeah. because he did it, right?" Yeah, absolutely. So you mentioned, which leads me to my next question, that there's a lot of bad education companies and there's also a lot of good ones. Yeah. How do you think people can identify the two? Because it's very difficult. Facebook yeah. ads. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah, in yeah. Your, how do you identify? I think you've got to. I, th- I think you've got to. You've got to try them out. So you've got to be open-minded. You can't just go in. I think you've got to ignore a lot of what you read online because I, I've read a lot of bad things about companies that I've done education with that I know aren't aren't true. And I think a lot of the negative press around stuff is is actually people not taking action. So they go along. They do. They do the the training and then they they go away and they don't actually put the put the steps that they've learned into practice and then they then blame the training provider. So I think you've got to be open-minded, you've got to go along, ignore either ignore both the hype and also the sort of the negative press. Mm-hmm. Go along, experience it for yourself and not spend all the money straight away. So maybe like do some taster courses. I think one of the things with Progressive when we did it was I'd done some training with another provider that I won't mention that I felt I got more value out of the three-day free course with Progressive than I had done on a paid course elsewhere. And I think that was enough to then for us to take that first step. And the first step was go to the masterclass, which was like their, their three-day course. And then enough value from that, that I was like, right, let's go to the next level, which was the year-long thing. So sort of take it baby steps. You don't have to go in for like the all singing, all dancing, you know, 50K a year <laughs> program. And also if it's not right for where you are with your business or financially, you shouldn't do it. So take steps into it. Um, do speak to other people. See if you can find, if you can find people that are success stories fr- from there. Then and the companies are, are happy to show you their success stories. Just go and speak to them. Say, can I have a call? How did it work? How do you think you got the most value out of going along to it? Um, and yeah, I think yeah, just do it that way. Yeah, um, I think also what you said there about the taster courses. I think most providers give some sort of free day or free yeah. couple of days. Yeah. So even without spending money, yeah. people can get a taste for. Yeah. How hard are they selling? Are they giving me knowledge? Are they giving me value? Yeah. Are the stories of success real, or did someone get ten HMOs in one month? Like, you know, yeah. what's the actual reality yeah. of it? So I think that's that's important. And they're always going to show you on a plate like their their best case studies. Like it's a business. Like yeah. they're trying to make sales. Of course, they're going to show you their best their best testimonials. And what you need to find out is how many other people have have got to that level, and actually yeah. what's what's the average if 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 one thing is like you can make a million pounds or you know of equity and 50k income in a year do most people make half of that well actually if i made half of that i'd still be quite happy i'm going to go along to it and i could yeah. potentially go to the top so yeah i think yeah just just see if you can find people that have been there and done it and and, and talk to them honestly about about the program but so much of it is is 
you get out what you put in yeah. so much like you've got to you've got to be present when you're there you've got to um you know put your phone away put your laptop away be really present when you're actually learning it and and implement what they tell you mm. you know probably most of the training providers if you do what they say you, you will improve like they can't yeah. guarantee that you'll hit certain levels but you're definitely going to improve it's, it's a process and if you follow the process it, it will work and it's a lot of time it's probably people not implementing it i think the key thing is the information is there but the, the, the important thing is about the support that the provider gives you as well mm. so when you hit a when you hit a, a block is there like a whatsapp group is there some kind of facebook community is there like telephone support how do you because that's really where you get the value like you can sit in a classroom fine but if you want when you hit a blockage if you can have someone there who's either a mentor or something that can that can help you through mm. that's where the value is and i think maybe so there's two things i think yeah lo- what we get out is what we put in yeah. so it's easy to go to a course that may be an average or maybe an yeah. incredible, but you do the same amount of nothing afterwards yeah. and you think they're both crap. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So which makes it even more difficult for people to find a yeah. course that they kind of yeah. like. Yeah, um, I think secondly, what you said about the support is important. Yeah. I think again, if a course hasn't promised those things and you've signed up to expecting them, yeah. there's a problem there. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. it's easy to do that because yeah. when the sales come in, when they give it all, there's 1997, you're yeah. running to the back yeah, and yeah, yeah, you've yeah, got yeah, your yeah. mum's credit card and you're yeah. doing your thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but actually, if you kind of say, hold on, stop. Let me ask them, right, do you give this, this, and this? Yeah. Maybe have a checklist. Yeah. Go to these free yeah, events thinking, right, I yeah. need this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Can't give it. I'll, yeah. see, I'll see your competitor. Yeah. So maybe people need to protect themselves yeah. before they go Definitely. and not I give agree. in to the And also have, have realistic expectations around, like, timelines. Like, nothing happens overnight. And <laughs> usually, you know, you'll be, you can potentially be so close to achieving something. And then mm. if you quit or if you go to another training provider or if you go to another property strategy, you don't know how close you were to the tipping point where you actually get, um, you get to the point where things start to happen. Um, so be realistic about the, the timelines and realistic about your own expectations of how quickly things will happen. Absolutely. Think, yeah. So let's talk about your property journey. Yep. So... You've done some interesting things. Yeah. Which is obviously why you've been in YPN. So let's start off with, after you did your education or during yep. your education, yep. what were, talk me through some of the deals or the big deals you had. Because I remember so, you... Yeah, so, the, so the, the first, um, a couple of the deals that we pipelined and started working on during that year mentoring was we did, um, it was a listed care home conversion into 10 apartments. So um, a big care so, yeah, it was. I think it was like 16, 20 bed. So it was a big old care home. Wow, Gone okay. into administration. It's quite a good opportunity in care homes because um, the way that care is going is more like purpose-built care rather than old converted buildings. So there's a oh. bit of an opportunity there. Um, okay. Top tip. Um, <laughs> so that was. So we went for that one. We actually started working with our joint venture partners that have now become our um, sort of full partners in a in the KHP develop, development business. Um, and you know that was a really 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 good deal um, we, we ran it slightly differently to how we're running things now because we were smaller then we were basically all really involved in it we were you know managing everything day to day James my business partner was like on site in the site office every day running everything um, but it was a, you know that's the best way to learn how to do that kind of thing um, so that was the first one that was the GDV was about 1.4 million in the end and we what, made, the, what did you buy it for? Do you we made, bought it for about 300 I think and then spent about seven or eight hundred on it all in, and then made about three hundred k, which is pretty good as five directors and things like that. So, um, and it took us a couple of years, I'm not but you know, yeah, I'm not, <laughs> yeah. not complaining. It was really good, and and actually that set us up with 
well, that's our credibility now to go on and move forward and do these kind of things. We use Crowd Property. Uh, oh, which, yeah, they've which, been on a um, podcost as well, yeah. Oh, really? Yeah, 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 yeah. Mike on. Yeah, 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 really nice good podcast, yeah. yeah. So we use them for that one and we've used them for every development deal since because it's just been so good working with them. Um, oh, so, that, so that was really good. And actually, it was really good exposure as well. So of you, course get, you get a lot of people coming yeah. along and they, they do the email, um, they do webinars, they send emails out, they do a lot of stuff on social media. So it's really good exposure for us and our brand as well. So yeah, we've got yeah. we've currently got three projects live on the platform. So we've had one fully paid back, three live, and we've got two more coming on soon. So we're using them a lot. It's been really good work. And how are you so. funding the deposit? And what percentage are you using the deposit? In this uh, case? So usually we do like a 50-50 like jet, um, equity investor. So the equity investor will put, or investors will put in all the money. Okay. Um, we'll then get the crowd property finance, we'll manage it, and then at the end they get their money back 50% of the profit. Um, so that's oh. usually that how we, how we fund those sort of bigger deals. Okay. Because usually you need four between, well, we've had between 400 and 600K. So it's quite a lot of money you need to put in um, in terms yeah. of equity investment. So. Okay. And then, so that care home, that came from, you did a few HMOs, yeah. and then you went care It was home. actually, well, it was a really interesting sort of step, because we did, so we did a few HMOs, then the next HMO we did was actually a repossession, where, a re, repossession of a grade two listed six-bed house, that we then split into a six-bed HMO with a two-bed flat below. Hmm. So there's quite a lot of complications around that one. Yeah. We bought it at 200k, which was an absolute steal, um, because it was going, because it was a, I think, it, yeah, it was going through repossession. We then had to get the planning, we had to get listed building consent, it was in a conservation area, um, and it was in an Article 4 area as well, so we had to get the permission to, to create an HMO there. So we did all of these things without really knowing that they were like quite advanced sort of strategies, but that what what was interesting in that was we met our now business partner at a PIN event down in Plymouth, and he basically, and I dug the email out the other day because it was quite funny, I sent it around to everyone. He basically said he'd do, he did some architectural work for us and help with planning and some drawings. And um, we were like, oh, thanks for this. Like, how much can we can we give you? And he was like, no, I'm going to do this this for free on the basis of our like, ongoing relationship. And that, and that, you know, he could have said, oh, no, I want five grand, 10 grand, whatever. But because he did that and he like then learned how we work and we learned how, learned how he works, that's led on to this like multi-million pound development company as a you know as a joint venture so i think the thing there is as well is don't think too short term in terms of yeah. if you want to build a relationship and and think about partnerships um that was a really good example so then we then did the care home with him um and with um with a couple of other people business partners I as well see. so um okay yeah it worked then, really well and then what were some maybe some of the biggest lessons from that care home whether they're structural construction yeah. finance whatever it is for people listening um i think I think probably how we how we ran it was was right for the first one that we did, but wasn't a scalable model. So like how we run it was James was on site every day. You know he couldn't go on holiday, he couldn't do anything. He was literally there. If he was away, we had someone sort of the site manager, but it wasn't the same sort of um, input. Um, we were all down there like a couple of days a couple of days a week really on site, just checking in, having site meetings, and it was a very like intense sort of period, which was good because we learned the whole process. But we were mm. like we can't scale this into a development company that's you know can operate without us most of the time and we can just set the strategy and, and raise the finance so one of the biggest learnings was how we we run projects so that was very hands on whereas now we've got um, we've got project manager we've got finance manager we've got someone that does sourcing full time um, we've got an architectural design assistant and we've got um, an admin assistant as well so all and now so the development company's grown into something that's a lot more sort of 
um, scalable and yeah. repeatable and we've got more processes and systems whereas before it was just like all of us together sort of brainstorming how do we how do we work this project out so like I said it was right at the time and it was mm. good that we went through that but it's not not a scalable thing and how did you find a good enough build team to do such a big project um, we had because we were doing HMOs we had a couple of contractors that we were working with so we sort of networked them but again we started to build new relationships with, with local contractors and some of them we're still using now on projects as well um, but yeah just basically mm. like that okay yeah. and those flats did you sell them or refinance yeah, yeah we sold them um, and they all sort of went to I think they were mostly downsizers there wasn't too many like first time buyers because where it was um, it's in a place called Salt Ash, which is over the water from Plymouth. Um, there wasn't any like nice, and again, it was about the product. It was a really nice product. It was a listed building. It was not nice grounds. It was level access to the high street, so there was loads of loads of benefits to it. And most of them went to, to downsizers. So couple, older couple, people, yeah, older people, a couple of first time buyers, I think. But yeah, and then and again, we've done that on another development we've done, which is um, twenty two apartments near Exeter. Um, again, a lot of those have gone to downsizers. We've sold seven so far out of 22, and we haven't even finished the first phase of building yet. So the sales wow. are going really well there. And again, it's just the quality of the product, um, the marketing towards the sort of downsizers, because there isn't that kind of product in the area. Um, yeah, so it's quite a good little niche we've got as well. Wow. So then what was the next project after the care home? Next project after the care home. Well, this is another lesson that we learned, right? So um, we were so focused on delivering that project that we weren't, pipelining the next one and because developments take so long sort of to negotiate to find them to negotiate on them to go through conveyancing the whole thing how long did it take for the planning that one took probably i think the first one was about 18 months just yeah, for so people to get the realism yeah, yeah, like yeah. actually if you, you should do it with some cash flow in the yeah. background De- oh, definitely definitely and we had our other businesses so it was it was okay but um yeah, we, we didn't focus enough on the sourcing pipeline then so after we sold all the units there we sort of had I think we had a year before we had our next project lined up. Wow, so then okay. we, had the, we had that year. We then had like nice profit out of that project. But part of that profit had to then go and fund sort of running the business for that <laughs> yeah, next yeah, period, yeah. salaries and things like that. Whereas the way you want it is you want to have finished project, already have the next one in planning yeah. or in negotiations or whatever. Because the bigger projects just take, you can't rush them. You know, you've got to, the negotiations, if you've got to go through planning, um, You've got to allow for a couple to fall out of bed for whatever reason. Yep. You've got to really have, like, have a lot of focus on the, on the sourcing pipeline. And that's why we've got full-time. Uh, one of our project managers just does sourcing full-time now. Okay. Um, and I think that's a big big lesson learned for, for the bigger projects. Okay. Otherwise, you get this sort of, we call it feast and famine, where you <laughs> go like, you know, you're really good. You're riding high because you've just sold some units. And then, you, then you've just got nothing for for a period of time and then feast again and you just want it to be a bit more a bit smoother it's always going to be lumpy because development income is always yeah. lumpy but you want it to be less lumpy than, than you that. do I so, think yeah. I see the same thing with buy to yeah. like the cash flow is steady yeah. but the the lumps when you I'm always sitting there waiting for refinance has it been has it been X many months here yeah. I'm just like yeah. like you're broke for this that's long it. you're yeah. rich for like a month exactly. and then you're broke again yeah. so it's, it's just like the entrepreneur's curse yeah, of, that's it. of property right so Definitely. you went from the care home conversion Learned this lesson, yep. and then a year later, yeah, about a year, I think we started on site at our um, chapel project. So it's um, again, it's Grade Two listed. Um, we're converting an old 
non-conformist chapel into 30 HMO rooms across six flats. 30? Yeah. It's a big chapel then. Yeah, it is massive. Yeah, and that's, I think that was probably, was that the article that you is saw? Windham? Windham Chapel. Yeah, it, yeah, yeah, yeah. So again, there was loads of com- complexities there. So grade two listed in an article four area, didn't have any windows down one side and it was overlooking another site. So there was massive like party wall issues and license issues on one side. Um, and then and now we split it into six flats, two seven bed flats, four four bed flats. Um, and but each of the flats is going to be HMO'd. Um, and and you've yeah, got planning for project. the yeah. So they in Article Four they said yeah you can add so HMO rooms yeah, to the basically because there's no other viable use for the building. So block of flats could you not do like individual? No, because the GDV isn't high enough to make the scheme viable because it's basically uh, like the building's sort of almost falling down. The only thing we retained was like the four walls. We even had to take the roof off and change that now. So you can put flats in there, yeah, but you don't you don't get enough from the sales to warrant the amount of work that has to go into it. You need a much more intensive use of the building, which is what HMO does. Um, and because of that, because we've got a good relationship with the planners, with the conservation team, that helped us actually get yeah get get planning. And were they difficult about planning, or did it, was it because your team was it quite smooth? Um, did they object on anything, or were they a bit iffy no, about I it? I don't think a... there was any objection. So predominantly, the, my business partner Phil that that helps us out on that first project sort of for free he deals with a lot of the planning stuff because he's an architect so oh, he deals with a lot of the planning so he deals with, with that um, and I think it wasn't easy but because we had the relationship with planning with conservation they understood uh, there's one thing one other thing as well so they understood the process we were going through we also had help from um, the empty homes team in Plymouth oh, okay, um, yeah. so they were like right we've got to bring this building back it was there was squatters there. It was a bit of a sort of arson risk. There was a lot of fly wow. tipping. So they they re- it was really bringing the area down. So they wanted to bring it back so much so that we got a loan and a grant from the local council. Which you can so get, we got yeah. um, 150k interest-free loan for 10 years. Nice. Of which 15k was actually a grant. So we'd have to pay it back. Lovely. So there's this sort of free money that's there, and then interest interest-free money as well. Um, and, and that because that's the same team that's another team within the council it all just helps build the case for like this yeah. is the use of the building and I think the main thing that the, the council's worried about is low quality HMOs and sort of student ghettos as well yeah. so once we could say it's not going to be either of those and that's really what the local councillors were worried about we did a consultation event and they were like they hear HMOs and they think sort of like drug dens yeah. and like really low quality stuff and actually, we're creating like the nicest, you know, accommodation in Plymouth there. So um, once you can explain that stuff to them, they're, they're on board with it. And I think the, one of the biggest lessons I hear from that is people. Yeah, Like definitely. it's easy to lose your rag with planners. Yeah. Especially the, the time they take to do things. It's easy to get annoyed at all of these processes. But when you understand the, the people involved and you have a people-focused mindset, yeah. I mean, definitely. it got you this, which... Yeah. Traditionally, yeah, like most councils, you say drug again. Yeah, but it'd be hard to do. And 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 now we're actually in the sort of lucky position where they're sending us deals where they've got empty units, and we sort of get to see ideal. them first. And you know, they don't all stack up, but actually, it's a really good intro into well, actually, um, getting them to send us the deals, and then when we go back to them for planning, they're probably more likely to be like, "Yep, push that straight through." Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So that, and again, that comes from. Well, one delivering, right? Yeah, because obviously, yeah. and is the project finished? The chapel? It's uh, end of November. It's going to be finished. Okay, so yeah, they've so seen you delivering yeah. on it. And we've, had, and we've had like the chief exec from the council came round. Was like, wow. I love what you're doing, um, and people from the local, um, the empty homes team. It's been in the paper. You know, it's been really good exposure on it as well. So I think you know yeah. what most people, and I'm definitely guilty of this. See the council as like people who are obstructing what you yeah. do, and often they can. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. 
like many things can in, in the process, but actually when you say things like the chief executive was there, yeah. it kind of makes them more human. Yeah. And definitely. I think like it is, and it's just it is like you say, it's people and people are just following a process. And if there's a planning guidance or there's an internal policy, like they can't they've got to follow it. So you've just got to understand like what information do you need to give them to make it's a bit like valuations, right? When you get your refinance done. You've got to make the valuer's life as easy as possible. You've got to present them with the information that he or she needs to be able to do the valuation report, present them with comparables, present them with like the works you've done there, present them with the ASTs. And it just makes their life easier. Now, there's a sliding scale of like how much you uh, sort of tell them how to do their job. And sometimes they don't, you know, they don't like that. But if you can, and actually if it's the same value that's going back time and time again because you're using the same companies, um, you can build a really good relationship with them and say, look, here's the pack. This is what we do now. Here's the pack. This will give you all the information you need. We think it's going to be valued in this range. Um, let us know. And you know, you don't always get the, the top of what you're hoping, but it definitely helps more than just them walking around on their own and making their own judgment up. Yeah. And it's the same with the council. You've got to give them all the information. You've got to head off. If you can overcome, it's just like sales. If you can overcome the objections before they come through, um, it just makes the whole thing. It is sales, isn't it? Yeah, yeah of course. <laughs> everything is sales. Everything is sales, everything yeah. Is sales. Yeah, yeah. So then what were the figures on that one? So I remember I did read them, but talk us through them. So the on the chapel, so the so we bought it for. I'm not a details guy, right? You'll understand. <laughs> you'll understand this. I've got a team of people that do that do details, so I just do the podcast. And <laughs> um, I think we bought it just under 200. I think we bought it about 180, 185. Um, you know, and we're buying. Well, at the time we were buying five and six bed HMOs for this, and we're making 30 oh, HMOs out of this. So you can see the kind of how yeah. quite cheap in commerce it is. Um, bought it for about 180, I think 185. I think with planning, it was about valued about 250. We're spending, I think, at 1.2 with interest and things like that, maybe a bit more than that. So we'll be all in for like 1.5, 1.6, and the current value is 1.9. Um, once it's once it's um, valued up, once it's full, what well, once it's tented and things like that. But we've actually nudged the rents up a bit, than, a bit more than we had in the original um, proposal. So we're hoping that we'll get a valuation of about two point four on it. Um, wow! If we can if we can achieve the rents, we think we can because the quality is so high. I mean, we've got like exposed stonework, like original features. The place looks incredible. It's a great location. We've got gigabyte internet in there, so it's like the fastest broadband in the whole of Plymouth. It's just wow. like little things like that yeah. means we can justify, you know, charging six fifty, seven fifty, whereas we might normally charge four fifty, five fifty for for HMO rooms. Uh-huh. Um, so if we can achieve those rents, two point four hopefully will be the valuation. So that'd be a good, and then we'll just refinance it and hold on to it. So um, it's not been easy. We are over on the cost, and we're over on program as well. I'm very going to be very open about that kind of stuff, and you can see in terms of and um, the crowd property. We're still within our like lending time, but we're so we're not gone into like penalty interest or anything. But we're behind where we thought we would be. It's been a massively com- complex project. Um, so like part of the back wall fell down, the roof had various issues in it. Um, it's just everything's just cost more. We knew it was yeah. going to be complex. We had contingencies in, and it's just it's just gone over. Um, but hopefully we'll get a good good valuation. And how fun. from your learning there, yeah. how can people who are maybe looking at a similar thing? Yeah. How can they allow for it going over? Or can you just not, do you think? Um, it's very, very tricky with a building like that. Um, when you're basically just keeping the four walls, I think, you know, you're always going to, you know, you're always gonna, we'll, we'll factor in, if we did an exactly the same project again, we'd factor in even more contingency, like a sort of a ridiculous amount of contingency <laughs> given what we've learned. Um, I think the way 
the way you set contracts up as well. So whereas you can sort of manage everything yourself and then have subcontract packages, that work that does work well. But then sometimes you get things that fall between two trades, and you have to pick up the bill for those. So if you need like labour on uh, on like a day rate, or if you've got to buy materials, like procurement strategy, you can say. I want the contractors to buy all materials and then it will cost you more up front, but then you've got certainty of how much it's going to cost. All things like that, there's little learnings that we'll take from delivering that kind of project. Um, but in, in that kind of you know listed building where you've got to put certain things in and you, you've got to do it, you've got to do it right, um, it is massively complex. But hopefully part of that would be why we can charge more for rents and why it'll be an amazing place yeah. for people to live because you go into this massive grand sort of entrance way all the flats go in through the same way through the same entrance um, then you go downstairs to the low ground floor and up to the two um, floors above um, so hopefully the listed buildings well we know that they cost more to do but we also know that on the sales and the refinances and the, and the rents you can achieve more because it's a unique you know yeah. it's a unique type of building so okay and then when you how did you find the deal how how did we find it i think um I, it was quite funny because one of our friends sent us a picture of it um probably six months before we bought it and it there's a there's a there's a big long uh, there's a big sort of window at the front there's two windows at the front of it but on one side someone had drawn like a phallus on the thing so they, I won't go too graphic but you can make you can picture your own thing it's like this long tall sort of like sausage like window on the front so someone had done some graffiti on there so we all sent that round on whatsapp and we're like that's really funny but then like six months later it was with a, a local agent and I went around to view it and I was like this is incredible and I think having the disconnect where I sometimes do a lot of the source or I used to do a lot of sourcing having a disconnect of, I don't know exactly how much it will cost to convert, I just know it's amazing. Having that separate from the team that's like, God, that's gonna be an expensive project. If they were outsourcing, they they might not see the potential in it because they're so focused on the detail of how much it's gonna to cost to do. Yes. Whereas having someone that's just a bit more like, oh no, I think it's be an amazing place to live in if we could do something with it. It gets you through uh... that first hurdle of like, it's like a mindset thing of like, we can do it. Right. I'm not saying that's always the right answer, but I think it's definitely helped with a couple of deals that we've done, um, the, the bigger deals. Um, so yeah, I went along, I viewed it, I was like, this is amazing. I probably thought in my head it would cost like a couple hundred K to do the works on it. Um, so luckily we've got a team of people that can work out how much it actually cost. Um, and yeah, just went from there. So wow. um, it was with a local agent, basically. The first couple of deals that we did both came just through local agents, and now we've got more like direct vendor. Um, we've got we use Land Insight, so we can yeah. find out ownership information, planning history, and things like that. Um, but yeah, to start with, just use commercial agents. And, okay. Um, yeah. And how much will this cash flow amount? So I think on the old rental numbers, it was about I think it was twenty twenty k. A month, I think, and then that would be about six k probably profit a month. Um, but I'm not sure it'll be more than that with the increase. It, it does depend on what, how much we get on the refinance and things like that, yeah, depending yeah, yeah. on how much how much the debt's costing. But um, it should be should be six probably six or seven k a month, hopefully. Okay. Once we're, all, once we're all cashed out, so and also we've got a we've got a we own an HMO lettings business, so that business does the management so yeah there's some income there as well so and how did you set that good. up did you just um, so we set that up me and james set that up because we when we had our two or three hmos in the early days um we um just they weren't being managed well 
and they you know the vo- there was there was voids the maintenance wasn't being handled correctly and things like that so um we were just like we need to set our own we just need to set our own thing up um yeah we just we just had you know the profit in the hmos as you know is in like the final room the final two rooms final three yeah. rooms and if those weren't filled we were really struggling to make money on them we were just like no one's going to care about our properties as much as we as we do so yeah. we were like right we took it in house we started off with um a girl that was that worked for us who was just doing some stuff on a um con- contracting basis so she'd just do like we just pay her to do viewings, pay her to do ASTs, things like that, which worked really well. She then ended up becoming an employee as well, which was really good. And, and she's actually just left to go traveling, but she was with us for three years. So since we set it up, she was left in the nice. beginning, which is really, really nice. because She helped us set the business up. Um, and yeah, that's how we started the lettings business. Now we're at, I think we're just over 200 rooms now that we manage. So wow. we own about half of them and the others we manage on behalf of other other landlords. So I think there's a market for a H, for HMO lettings anywhere in the UK. Because yeah. most letting agents say, oh, we I don't know. do it or we don't like to do it. And they just don't understand it. You know, it's, you know, it's, it is more work. It's definitely more work and there's more, you know, the, ma- the maintenance, the, the amount of things that come in from tenants just because of the scale we're at. It's like every day there's something. There's always something small. We've got an in-house maintenance team. Um, but yeah, it's really good. And we do sourcing of HMOs, we do refurbs and we do lettings. So we, we work with clients who want to build a sort of HMO portfolio as well because the yields are really good in Plymouth. So yeah. it's, um, property prices aren't that expensive. You can pick up a six bed house for sort of, now it's about 200, 210, 220 for a six that bed. That is quite cheap actually. Yeah, and, and they'll rent for, you spend a bit on the refurb, but they'll rent for 3,100, 3,200 a month. So. Get on suites that's a really good deal like yeah you have to spend like we're spending we're, we're gutting these houses so okay, we're spending yeah, yeah, yeah. like 60 to 100k doing them up um, but they still work really well financially you're looking at our investor packs are usually 15 to 25 percent plus return on money left in basically yeah, yeah, yeah. so if you've got a bit of money left in that money will be earning you net 15 to 25 percent maybe more on some of them Okay. So and, yeah, and you have a property business, yeah. right? So I guess how I define that is, you have staff, you yeah. have offices, you yeah. have something that's scalable and maybe one day can be sold. Yeah. Um, I think a lot of us in property don't have that. Yeah. And probably don't want it. I personally don't. Yeah. I want a property portfolio, and that's that's yeah. where it ends, not a business. Now, first question is what what made you want to have a property business? Um, I think. That's a good question, actually. Um, I guess it sort of just happened, <laughs> but probably it's happened because we're we we've because we've done the training, we've done the education. We're like, and we want to have something at scale. We know that we can't deliver that on our own, and we know that we want to have the freedom to be able to do things with friends and family and go on holiday and have the have the money to do that kind of stuff, and also have more importantly have the time. Mm. So me not living in Plymouth has probably helped, even though James, my business partner, and my other business partners in the other company, KHP, live near there. We don't want to be, you know, we don't want to be I think the last time I I unplug I plunged I don't know what it's called, plunged a toilet <laughs> was like two years ago. Maybe yeah, probably two or three years ago, and I was like, right, I'm never doing that again, <laughs> like never ever. So I think, yeah, not not wanting to be doing the viewings and doing maintenance and, and doing that kind of stuff ourselves, um, doing finance, doing bookkeeping. One yeah. of my biggest lessons learned actually was that I did that for too long myself, and we should have got a bookkeeper probably a year, eighteen months before we did. Um, and now we've got like finance manager, we've got two finance assistants, and then we've got another finance assistant in the other company. Um, 
and I was just doing, I was doing zero. Well, it started on a spreadsheet, then it was in zero. Um, and it was just, it wasn't a good use of my time. Some of the stuff I did wasn't right. So then as soon as we got the bookkeeper, that was her first job was to actually put right all the things that were, like it worked, it just wasn't like tidy and, yeah. and, and in the right places. Um, so that was a big lesson. And yeah, I think just not wanting to do the stuff ourselves, um, and knowing that we're, our higher value tasks are James around construction and around networking contractors, me around sales and marketing, investor relations, um, and the team sort of culture piece. And knowing that we needed time to focus on that stuff, we'd need people to actually run the business. Do the stuff, yeah, okay. So I want to talk about team culture, but yep. before that, so in KHP, how many directors are there? So five directors. So yeah. how do you, I mean, having one JV or direct yep. can be, you know, tricky. Yep. How do five of you agree on things, work things out and keep it going smoothly? Um, we're still learning. <laughs> no, it works really well. So basically the, the, the main thing is we've got, I do sort of sales and marketing, finance, stuff like that, some sourcing. We've got um, James, who uh, is also my business partner with Moreview. He does construction, basically the construction side of it. Um, we've got Kyle, who is a qualified building surveyor. He nice. works. He works sort of across ops, but also mostly in finance because he's very detailed. He's a lord okay. in the you know wealth dynamics. Oh yeah, yeah. I thought you mean he's an actual lord. No, no, no. no, no. I was going to say he might be. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. He's got a big estate. No, um, so he's a lord. So he's like very in the detail. Loves the spreadsheet. So he okay. does like deal appraisals and he does finance and things like that. He loves that. Then we've got Phil, who's an architect. So like very creative thinking. Does a lot, does a lot of our planning stuff as well. He's 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 an architect and then we've got Zai who's um, really loves interior design and, and stuff like that so I think the key thing is with any joint venture partnership we don't really tread on each other's toes mm-hmm. so we've all got our own areas we've got a sales and marketing team um, which I head up we've got a finance team which Carl heads up we've got an ops team which James heads up and they all independently have remit to sort of they've got the yeah. mandate to make decisions they've got budget um, and then any decisions that are too big to be made there come to the board meeting where we all make the decisions on them. So we've split out into teams and we've also got our own areas of speciality that we work in. And I think that's really important for um, to just to prevent yourself treading on each other's toes. And even in Moreview, you know, when it's when it's just me when it's it is just me and James in Moreview, me doing finance and sales and marketing and team stuff and James focusing more on the construction side and, and um and that, that piece works really well. We we don't, we very very rarely sort of have disagreements on anything yeah. because um, we just don't talk, tread on each other's toes which yeah. is really good but also we have we all have in both companies we have an aligned vision of like where we want to take the company and what we want to do and what we want to focus on which is what you need as well okay and then you mentioned team culture there yeah like property I think in many ways is quite behind let's yep. say fintech or just yep. technology industry right what like what does having a team or office culture mean to you and how do you maintain or create one i think um it's i I think it's super important it's something i really 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 enjoy working on um i think your team needs to be representing you when you're not there and also you need to have people that enjoy coming to work like okay no one's going to enjoy coming to work as much as being on holiday or whatever like it's still work but You've got to make it so that actually people enjoy what they're doing. People feel valued. People feel like they're being developed. So even down to things like so, we've got um, like values, like our company values on the wall. So everyone's aligned to those, and we can assess against those. Um, we've got um, we have appraisals where we go through like development 
um, development areas, so where people are doing well, where they can improve. We've got a bonus scheme. Um, we've got training budgets, so people can go on role specific okay. training. Um, we've got like a dog friendly office, so we've got oh, dogs in the office. That's, that's like, the oh, best thing. Oh, you <laughs> can, I'm that's it, nothing else, yeah. just that, right? Um, and you still need to have some kind of rules around that, like how many dogs, how old can yeah, they be, yeah. like where you know, so it doesn't get out of hand. Yeah, but yeah. you say like this is this is our thing. Even down to like the team meeting, so in Moreview where we've got a bigger team, we have like we start off with personal success, business success, hmm. um, black box thinking, which is which we'll maybe come on to later. Yeah, yeah. Uh, areas for improvement, um, movements for the week, what people are focusing on, and even stuff like that is people are then like you then learn a lot about the people that you work with because because yeah. then you're like someone's like oh, I'm having a baby or someone's like I did a 10k run in this time and it's just like. Just making it a bit more personable and that's why I think a lot of the people in our team are friends outside of work as well as colleagues sort of in work so yeah I think culture is super important I think um, I think investing in the people is super important because you want them to enjoy that they're working there I think even just from a pure economics point of view and, and sort of business point of view the cost of staff turnover and staff churn is massive mm, um, yeah. so you just you definitely don't want that the amount of you know knowledge that you lose when one person leaves and you have to get someone else in and train them and, and are they okay or do we need to actually get someone else in you know so and that's really important even even like going above and beyond so like people like answering an email at the weekend or picking up the phone or working a bit late you know and then but then it's give and take where you say okay well if someone needs to come into work late and work you know work a bit later yeah. or they need to go home early because their car's going in for an MOT or whatever it is you've got there's got to be that give and take um, and I think that's really important as well I think you know it's property needs to catch up with the rest of the world in yeah. many ways like in terms of how slow and old it is yeah. but culture is something that like us as business owners yeah. and people listening it's our like it's under our control yeah definitely so like you said the, the cost of people leaving like, I used to be a recruitment consultant yeah we charge five to ten grand to replace someone and then you've got a three month guarantee and then after that we don't really care yeah if you're going to keep doing that because you haven't built the right culture yeah look at estate agents they have a high turnover yeah, of staff yeah, right yeah. because generally any estate agents listening oh. um, their culture is not as good as let's say yeah. Monzo Bank yeah. right who are yeah. miles ahead of everyone yeah. so I think people listening if you're going to grow a business yeah read have you read Netflix culture the culture deck no, really good yeah, book yeah, yeah. I think it's called I think it's just called the Culture Code. It's a okay. red book yeah, by yeah, Netflix because yeah, yeah. they have like an incredible culture, yeah. and it is like the bible of yeah. company culture. So anyone listening, read it's that book. Yeah, well, yeah. It's it's an incredible book. I think so, the other thing as well is is just which we which we have done in the past and we're going to do a lot more going forward is explaining the strategy to people. Mm. Like I think a lot of people think strategy is what you do at board level and you know you keep it to yourself and then you just tell the you know you tell the team what they need to do but actually you need to bring them along on that journey so yeah. say like we've been so we've grown from like just over 100 rooms to just over well yeah just over 200 rooms now and we're going to be at probably i think probably three or four hundred by the end of next year definitely 300 probably 400 by the end of next year nice. and explaining like how that works explaining like why different areas of the business are important explain why we're doing things explain why we're going into some strategies why we're not going into others or we're exiting like that's really important because then people feel like okay i'm on a journey with this company i'm not yeah. might not be there forever but i feel bought into the to the journey i think yeah. that's an important part of culture as well yeah um it is, and you know, that, that, that's like the old corporate thing, right? Everything happens yeah. behind closed doors. Yeah. You come out, you tell everyone what we're doing, and that's it. They but right now, why? Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. yeah. But then that's what makes people leave. People who are like smart and want a future in, in a business somewhere, they want to just know, they just want to be a yeah. fly on the wall. Yeah. Like you said, you don't yeah. have to 
they don't necessarily have to have an input, but they have to have some sort of visual, yeah. like see it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you mentioned black box thinking. Yeah. You've read the book? Yeah. So how do you apply that to, well, how do you apply that to your life, your business? So we have, it was actually, I think it was James's brought, brought it up. We both read it, but he was like, we should implement this in the business. So probably two, about two years ago, we started applying it. Um, because I really like the concept of not dwelling on things that have gone wrong and yeah. the concept of actually using them as a way to, to improve. Um, so now, how that sort of manifests in the business is every team meeting, we have well, we have two things. We have black box thinking business critical and we have black box thinking winter hit list. So winter hit list is something that we've adopted from Dan Hill's Property Entrepreneur, which is like you just dump a load of ideas of things, ways that you think the business can be better into like an Asana project okay. or onto a pad or whatever. And they don't need to be worked on right now. You work on them in the in the winter, right? So that might be a new it might be a new system, a new process, a gap that you think you've got in the team. But it's not like business critical stuff. It's not like we, could, we it's not going to prevent us delivering on in the business okay. this week. So we've got business critical, which is for things like uh, okay, a guest couldn't get into the SA unit. Why was that? Oh, it was because the cleaners didn't replace the key and let's dig into why that was okay it's because the key box was broken and there wasn't a way that they could report it something like that it's just okay, a generic yeah, yeah, example yeah. but it's like business critical stuff because stuff because we've got another guest coming next you know the next day or the next week yes. that needs to be able to use that so that's black box thinking business critical where we need to just dive in get a solution implement it um, and the other thing yeah is the, is the winter hit list so it's like well actually our some system that we use isn't the best like it's okay and it's working okay but if we're going to scale from 200 rooms to 400 by next year are we going to be able to cope at 400 when it's struggling yeah. whatever the thing is um and yes yeah, so that's the way we use it at the moment and we have black box thinking in the team meeting so people yeah, um, talk about what the what the issue was um and sometimes talk about the root cause then but some, usually it's like we need to take that offline because we've only okay. got an hour for the team meeting we can't you know problem solve it there and then but yeah. you get the right people in the room and they go through and they problem solve it and I think it's just worked really well in our business in terms of people not being worried about covering up mistakes and um, things like that because yeah. you know mistakes happen processes fail systems fail people fail um, it just happens um, and now we've got a really good culture of people in both businesses of people raising that and talking about you know why uh, what, well, what the best thing is to, to do in the future to prevent I it. I think it's important to allow that room to fail yeah, and, and it's exactly. okay to, especially yeah. I think actually for people listening who don't have a business mm. who have just property, even in your own heads, yeah. it has to be okay to fail. I'm not saying just go waste 100 grand on, no. on this, you know, but it's okay to make those mistakes as long as you learn from them, yeah, right? Definitely. I mean, if you give people the environment to do so, I think studies have shown it It does increase yeah. your... Like Google do it, Microsoft... Yeah. Everyone does it. And these companies... I, I, are, can't, I can't imagine having a business where... I, I don't know how other businesses do it where they don't have a system where a failure is captured and something's put in place to stop that happening again. Yeah, I don't... I can't even imagine... It doesn't... I can't even... It's like, not very really modern, how is it? it? No, how that would but, work. But tons, but tons definitely course, do. Course, like, yeah. Without a doubt because that's why they keep... And that's why they go into administration. Yeah. And that's why things yeah, happen. Yeah. yeah. I've realised... If someone yeah. hasn't read the book, yeah. they don't know what black box thinking is. Matthew Syed. What, what is black box thinking? Summarise it okay. just in like a so, sentence. Okay, so, so basically, and it, I think it's probably a bit harsh on the, the medical profession because they're probably getting better, but in the book, <laughs> it talks about the, the contrast between the medical profession where there's a lot of cover-ups, there's a lot of hierarchical disputes between 
like consultants won't listen to junior members of staff when something goes wrong and they'll like pull rank and things like that and there's a lot of cover-ups versus the airline industry where where there's a near miss or an accident or anything like that all the data is immediately shared between plane manufacturers uh, between airline companies um, and travel operators and all of that to make things safer and that's why that industry which on paper looks pretty dangerous flying through the air in a tin can um, actually is one of the safest has got one of the best safety records because they're using that black I mean in literal terms it's like getting the black box data from the from the recorder to find out what went wrong after a crash but actually it's applied to the whole industry even in terms of near misses, mm. near misses and things like that it's constantly iterating to make itself better versus the medical profession where there are cover-ups and there's more hierarchical uh, sort of um, conflict so what it's saying is use failure whether that's people processes systems as a way to learn and be better rather than like covering up and yeah you know, which sounds like so obvious when you say it but yeah, actually but people don't do it when it's the, the human emotions that you get yeah. in that situation it doesn't i mean look yeah, it's at, pride and you everything know, you, yeah. look at boeing they hid all that data yeah. they paid the officials off so it's yeah, like yeah, yeah. they're airlines but they still and they're one of the biggest manufacturers yeah. but they still they basically kill people yeah. and it's like yeah, yeah, yeah. What the hell? But if they followed what the rest of them do, exactly, it wouldn't happen, right? And it's, just quite, it's just about constantly improving and also not having a blame game. I think one of the other interesting things out of it was if if there's a if there's a failure, a process, a, some, a failure in the business, and it's got customer impact or whatever. It's never one single point of failure. There's always many things that, yeah. have, that have come to cause that, and attributing blame to one person or to one system isn't the right thing to do because actually you dig into it and it's like, okay, well that system failed but usually when that system fails that person's in place to then safeguard it but that person was on holiday and there wasn't any cover so actually the root cause is both of those things we need to fix that one and we need to fix that yeah it's never as simple as there's one reason that something happened and i think people try and fix businesses or mindsets from the top end which yeah. is how can we add more to what we have of whatever but actually if you start at the bottom and you fix what you yeah. have made mistakes on it's easier cheaper would probably give you more of a boost than just yeah. you keep adding to the top the bottom's just getting short, yeah, short so yeah, you're, that's it. you're the same kind of I know. thing really yeah um, cool so we're nearly at the end of the podcast what is next for you and your business so what's next so we're currently pipelining a couple of big new big developments so commercial conversions so we're looking at um, without going into too much detail we're looking into care homes schools um, we've got a couple of we've got two developments three developments on site which will be finishing off the three that are on crowd property which is Wyndham Chapel um, we're doing the care home into 22 apartments which will be finished um, early part of next year we're doing a hotel into 10 apartments that we're selling which will be finished um, probably mid next year and then we've got the new ones that we're pipelining um, in, on the more views that's KHP on the more view side sourcing more HMOs for investors refurbishing them managing them growing the lettings business from sort of 200 to 400 500 um, and yeah and doing Property Entrepreneur I'm really excited this year to do Property Entrepreneur we did have a bit of a lull of even though I've been talking about doing how important property education is we sort of had a bit of a, a lull after we did the VIP programme we then sort of went into an implementation phase and did a lot of that and we got um, a finance director that works with us which is which is really 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 good um, like one or two days a month comes in and talks to us is in our board meeting and helps us out and that we sort of use that as mentoring for a period of time um, and we're going to continue with that but then now we're like right we need some property education um, sort of mentoring as well so really excited about that um, yeah that's it oh I'll go on honeymoon I'm going on honeymoon in January so I actually have some time I, I say actually have some time off I think anyone that's listening that knows me will be like I do 
have quite a good balance between yeah. work and and and, um, and and having holidays and things. But um, yeah, looking forward to that again. South nice. Africa, so very yeah. nice. And is good. there a bit of tech or yeah. an app or a bit of software that you just can't live without? Uh, yeah, probably Asana at the moment. Um, so Asana's, Asana? Asana's task management sort of can sort of use it for project management although not detailed construction stuff so we just use it for tasks um we use asana i use slack in one of the businesses Slack is great yeah docusign we use a lot yeah. so even like signing asts and having everything through there we use arthur for property uh, property and tenant management um what else do we use a lot yeah we doc um cam scanner so oh for, that's incredible yeah, yeah, like yeah. the amount of things i, I don't have yeah. laser scanner yeah exactly like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's such a good app um yeah loads uh anything else we use I think that's it. That's yeah, pretty Asana's, Asana's pretty cool. Asana, I use yeah. it for like, yeah. the, the re, not detailed refurbs, but at least to say, okay, where yeah. the hell are we? Yeah. What's happening with the finance? Do you, do you use Instagant? I don't. Is that Instagant? It's a, it's a plugin to Asana maker. or it's an add-on oh. to Asana. And what it will do is it will put your Asana tasks in a Gantt chart. So if you're using it for refurb project management, because we use it for a little bit in the HMO refurbs. Um, actually, I say a little bit. Our project manager that runs it refurbs <laughs> uses it all the time, um, but yeah, we'll put it into a Gantt chart, um, and then you can either change the dates in Instagram and it will back-populate into Asana, or you can change the dates uh, in Asana and it'll populate into Instagram. So check it out. I like this Instagram. Yeah, I will check this out. And yeah. then, what are your top three favorite books? Oh my god! <laughs> I'm putting you on, <laughs> the, spot. on the spot. <laughs> Do you know what? I've actually just finished listening to um, the Art of Exceptional Living by Jim Rohn. Oh, um, okay. so it's another it's a recommendation from um, the Property Entrepreneur course they do a book club so every month you've got to read a book um, so that one's amazing it's all that's all about working on yourself before you work on your business um, so that's really really good I just finished listening to that um, How to Win Friends and Influence People oh, incredible it's book yeah. it's like the Bible of life yeah. it's like how yeah, to just yeah, be yeah. a good person right? Um, and do you know what I just like Tony Robbins Tony Robbins Tony books Robbins, um, yeah. Unleash the Giant Within and is it a good book or is it very American and shouting high five you? Um, Does he give you that? Have you have you kind of been like that was profound? Uh, wow. Yeah, I think it okay. is. I think it is. I and I, like, I know there's people have mixed mixed opinions on uh, on Tony Robbins, but I think if you actually listen to what he's saying, he is basically a psychologist. Like he's worked with so yeah, many people yeah. over such a long period of time that he knows how people tick. And actually, I think I think he was probably mentored by Jim Rohn. In, in his early career I think that's how he got into it if he was doing promotions for him I think and a lot of there's a lot of overlap with it which is obviously Jim Rohn's um, was the was the original one uh, and a third one Black Box Thinking Great side. Yeah, side. Yeah, he's got yeah, a new yeah. one out uh, something, yeah, it's about diversity one. okay yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm listening to it right now but yeah. it's about how diversity gets better results which okay. is what we spoke about yeah, yeah, in a way yeah. so yeah. another one to listen yeah. to so Mo if people want to get a hold of you yep. What's the best place to find you? So I'm hopefully all over social media. It should be easy to find me. I think on Instagram, I'm more at Jeffrey Hakier, M-U-R-A-T, Jeffrey with a J, and then Hakier, H-A-Y-K-I-R. Um, on Facebook, Mo Hakier. Um, on Instagram and Facebook, Moreview Property and KHP Group. Um, and if you want to email me, more at M-U-R-A-T at Moreview Property, which is M-O-O-R-V-I-E-W Property, or one word, dot com. Awesome. Well, Mo, thank you so much for coming. Thank you for having me on. It's been really good fun. If you like this podcast, connect with Tej on Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube for more great content.